Okay, so <clears throat> today we want to focus on the third of the Brahma Viharas of Mudita, or appreciative joy. Now, the place where we left off yesterday was recognizing that appreciative joy is one of the strands of joy. But that actually to speak about appreciative joy, personally I feel it's necessary to actually trace the ways in which joy is a a thread that runs through the entire fabric of the path and the teaching and the practice. So my personal inclination would be to set this wider context and then to narrow down more specifically on the quality of mudita. Are you agreeable? (laughs) Joy is never a denial of the difficult never a denial of the painful or the imperfect. But it is a recognition that the mind, the heart, is strengthened, made serene, and made malleable by the presence of joy. It really is one of the qualities, a balancing quality, I would say, that allows us to hold in our hands the reality that all of our lives and many of our moments are formed of the lovely and the unlovely, the welcome and the unwelcome. And as I mentioned this morning, uh, joy is not something we contrive. It is not a product of willpower. Uh, It is something that we actually learn to make room for, to make space for. So as John mentioned yesterday, um, mudita has its roots in this polyterm to gladden, to liberate the heart through gladness. So here we're not speaking about states of exhilaration, excitement, or rapture, although they may very well have traces of joy within them. We are not speaking about the dramatic. We're actually more pointedly speaking about an inwardly generated joy. And that phrase is deeply important. It's an inwardly generated joy. Um, Born of our own hearts, minds, their ease, and it is born of insight. If you think about how much of this teaching and how much of this path is, is about really recognizing that although we live in the world of conditions, our consciousness is not not always to be shaped by the world of conditions. We can have a toothache without having a mind ache. (laughs) That simple. But it has so much about inwardly generated happiness, inwardly generated peace, inwardly generated collectedness, withdrawing this kind of whole ideology and belief system, you know, that you have the power to make me happy or unhappy, that the snow makes me happy or unhappy, that the noise makes me happy or unhappy. This is about what is going on within our own minds. In the Dhammapada, the early text that we've mentioned a few times, the Buddha speaks quite distinctly to this quality of joy. Live in joy, 
in friendliness even amongst those who hate. Live in joy and health even among the afflicted. Live in peace even among the troubled. Look within, be still, free from fear and attachment. Know the sweet joy of the way. But he also goes on to say that it is a disciplined heart that knows true joy. Again, putting joy into the context of being a consciously cultivated path rather than an experience we stumble across if we're lucky. Don't add in here. I think it's also worth bearing in mind what it would be like to have a joyless path. Um, all too often, I think that I think I mentioned this yesterday that we can. Um, have an approach to the practice which is fairly joyless. The heart is leaden rather than uplifted. Um, The whole practice itself can feel torturous. It can feel another chore that we have to engage in. Now this is what we're speaking about here is the absolute opposite. This is why it is a support of awakening. Um, that joy is present. Joy, and I don't actually make so much of a distinction between the joy which is spoken about in the Brahma Viharas and joy as one of the supports of awakening, because joy is ultimately appreciative. Whether that appreciation is for the joy of others, as it is in Mudita, or whether it is a general overall appreciative sense of being in this world. Um, which we can all too often forget. This is a very under-cultivated aspect, I think often particularly in the Western world. Um, In a form of Japanese Buddhism called Shinran, in Japanese Shinran, the greatest practice is one of appreciation and gratitude. They go to the temple not uh, to uh, do formal meditation, but to actually contemplate gratitude and appreciation. And this is an uplifting of the heart as well. As any encounter, for example, with nature can often be an uplifting, joyful experience. And so what I think we need in the practice, this is my own personal feeling, is what we need in the practice is inspiring aspects and dimensions of the practice things that can uplift us, that can actually make us, in a sense, want to practice. There is nothing worse than thinking, oh my God, I've got to go and do my meditation. It's terrible. Okay, and I'll go and sit there for three quarters of an hour. (laughs) This is not the approach. It's like approaching the scaffold. (laughs) There is not a lot of joy in it. And I think once we begin, I think, even just to perceive some shifts and some changes and can recall, actually an appreciation of what has actually shifted for us, this can start to inspire and uplift our hearts and make the approach to what we're doing so much more open, so much easier, so much more actually joyful in our approach to this. I'll say some more about this, but I'm going to pause for a second. Okay, so I want to look at some of this kind of landscape of joy. But it is important to bear in mind that joy 
always relies upon our eyes and our hearts being present and open. That we could be in the most delightful of situations, but if the mind, the heart, does not have that sort of underlying sensitivity, of course, it will just pass us by. So please note the relationship to sati here. So the Buddha was not a denier of uh, worldly joy, sensual joy, as an aspect of the larger landscape of joy. Life indeed would be a much poorer place without wonderful music, literature, art. We can delight at the laugh of a child. We can delight at the sunset. We can, as John says, go outside and appreciate the beauty of the natural world. I mean, all of these moments can indeed, they have the potential to be surrounded by clinging, but it is not predetermined that this is so. I think it's very important you know, to look at this quality of over-earnestness in our path at times. You know, that our path is actually not made more noble by the uninterrupted preoccupation with dukkha. Opening our eyes, opening our hearts, I think in moments of natural loveliness, we learn important lessons about stillness and receptivity. We get a taste of joy. What we really get a taste of is the capacity of our hearts to be touched and to respond with gladness. Now, clearly, one of the dimensions of gladness and joy that the Buddha speaks about with great frequency, and we have spoken about here, is, uh, describes the outcome of a life permeated by integrity, a commitment to acts, thoughts, words of kindness, as a life that is filled with the joy of blamelessness. We see that when, with metta, we really do begin to free our hearts from the grips of aversion, the source of all unethical acts, words, and thoughts. We are actually cultivating an inner environment in which the seeds of joy can be deeply planted. But as when the Buddha speaks about the bliss of blamelessness, of course, he is speaking about the freedom from residues. All of the residues that arise out as an outcome of aversive acts, thoughts, words, the residues of guilt, of shame, of I wish I hadn't, I wish I'd made another choice, wish I could take that back, you know, should have found another way to say that. Think about those thoughts that loop around in our mind. Um, the if only, it's the very big world of if only. And, you know, there are places where the Buddha describes awakening as a freedom from residues. It is an important aspect to consider when we talk about ethics, as we've talked about integrity as an expression of metta, how it fosters relationships of honesty, respect, dignity, integrity, um, and necessary foundation of, out of uh, mudita. I think the thing that Christine has just said again is very important when we begin to live an ethical life, truly trying to make our behavior um, as such as not to cause harm in this world, either to ourselves or others, 
then we open ourselves towards something which is far easier, freer, and actually more joyful. When we live in the constant shadow of the, as I think Christine has just said, the if only I hadn't. If only I hadn't said, if only I hadn't done, or I wished I had, or I wished I hadn't. When we live under that shadow, we live under the shadow of an oppressiveness, uh, which doesn't need to be there. Um, If only we can adhere to an ethics of responsiveness, an ethics of responsibility here. And even just using, uttering the word ethics, make it sound like a heavy, heavy, onerous thing. It isn't. It's a receptive, sensitized way of being, of living, of being with others in a way that is respectful uh, with others and respectful to ourselves. Notice I'm always including ourselves within this. Because if there is lack of respect to ourselves, if there is harm done towards ourselves, it becomes so much easier to do to others. And when we live under this weight of oppressiveness of the if-onlys, then it becomes a fairly joyless existence again. I actually think it opens it up to depression a lot of the time, even if it's not the clinical form. It opens us up to ways of living which are a burden. The opposite is the case when we live with a degree of freedom that ethics does, because it's a freedom from, if you like, all of the stuff that goes around, particularly in the Western world, of guilt and the oppressiveness of that guilt as well that we can carry around with us. You know, this is the freedom from residue, the freedom from actually having to think, oh, perhaps I should, perhaps I shouldn't. You know, the stuff that we often endlessly go over, this creates the joyless life. This creates the, I think, the stagnant life in many senses. So when we begin to move into more ethical forms of behavior and ethical ways of being, then there becomes a freedom and that freedom releases a sense of joyfulness. You know, not elation, we're not talking about vast you know, heady forms of elation, but we're talking about a gentle, gentle joyfulness that ripples through our sense of being in this world, rather than, I think, the burden of all of the stuff that we often carry around with us. So another um, aspect of joy, which any of you who've read any of the discourses will come, have come across very frequently, is what the Buddha describes as pity, not pity. Mm-hmm. Pity. This is a kind of a blissful state often associated with deep concentration. And again, the Buddha cautioned very much about pursuing these states as ends in themselves, but does it make them unworthy? And their worthiness, the, the worthiness of these concentration states is actually, I think, most deeply in the glimpse that they offer us of the vast potential of our minds and our hearts to know an inwardly generated joy. Born purely, born solely of developing a deeply collected heart and mind. So when the Buddha speaks of these concentration states, it's not so much about this state or that jhana or that jhana or another jhana. It is actually speaking about this, this potential for this 
deep inner refinement, I would say, of concentration and attention, which actually generates a great deal of rapture and bliss and, of course, peace and equanimity. But what's really being discovered is the nature of a mind that is quite free from fragmentation and quite free in those moments of the hindrance factors. So the joy that is generated really kind of reveals the nature of a mind, perhaps we might say, which is both truly a friend and is inwardly sufficient. Now, the insight factor of that, of course, is once, you know, this is actually why we promote formal meditation quite strongly, um, because there is something about really discovering that taste of inwardly generated joy that actually makes such an enormous shift in our relationship to the world around us. Because if we do live in the ideology that happiness lies outside and joy lies outside, then of course we have created a climate in which craving and clinging abound. How else could it be? If we really discover inwardly generated happiness, not born of gaining, not born of getting rid of anything, then actually the tendency to move into those domains of clinging, of grasping, of pursuing, really look pretty transparent and pretty unfulfilling. So therein, I would say, is the benefit of, one of the primary benefits of discovering that mind which has, and by the way, stop talking about somebody else's mind, which has that mind to develop that capacity for that quality of refinement. One of the other things we're particularly talking about in joy is what I call a refreshed cognition, the ability to perceive the world anew, the ability to be able to see and approach the world as if afresh. For many of us in our cognitive processes and the way that we perceive, and the Buddha outlines this very, very strongly in, in the Madhupindika Sutta and the Honeyball Sutta and the Majjhimanakaya, the middle-length discourses. What he gives us as a picture, and I'm not going to go into the details, but what he gives us as a picture of is how we're always cognizing the same. Or we're always basically um, picking up past perceptions and projecting them into the present moment so that our perceptions become flat. Our way of being in the world is flattened, deadened, by the fact that we don't encounter anything new in our world. This remarkable thing that probably most of us have had, particularly when we were children, of seeming endless summers. I don't remember when I used to be off school, uh, the summers used to seem so endless, and now the years seem shorter and shorter and shorter. And partly of that, part of that is because we don't encounter anything new. As a child, everything is fresh. Everything you encounter is exciting. Everything you encounter is interesting. You're curious. It's, it's new. It has that freshness and often that joyousness about it. Sometimes you get this in, in Japanese haiku, this attempt to recapture um, and refresh our sense of cognition. There's a beautiful one by Basho. Uh, that goes, come quickly by the fire, my friend. Let me show you something wondrous, a ball of snow. <laughs> yeah. How very different from, oh, here's the snow again. 
which obviously is a conditioned phenomena. You know, it's conditioned by all of our past experience of disruption and irritability and all of the things that we bring to it so we don't see it afresh. Perhaps only when we stop, and this is again the benefit of the formal practice, when we stop still and don't drag in all of those past perceptions, do we begin to recapture that sense of wondrousness about what we're perceiving and the sense of joy perhaps that comes with it. When we're constantly just re-perceiving the same, there can be no joy. Or it can be very, very difficult to evoke any sense of joy in that. So, domain of joy, I think we have already touched on, so I will not spend a long time about the component. But the joy of gratitude, as John has mentioned, and as I mentioned this morning in the instructions, I mean, gratitude is, is not any endeavor of the, uh, any kind of denial of the deep pain we can experience of feeling that we don't have enough or are not enough. Yet here we are in the only life we can live, and there is much that is well. I remember so clearly years ago co-teaching with a colleague of mine, and, and I arrived in the morning for breakfast, and I was a little grumpy, I confess. And, and he started out with this long list of questions. He says, you know, did, did you have a bed to sleep in last night? I said, mm, yeah. He said, enough warmth? Said, mm, yeah. He said, driving here this morning, nobody crashed into you? I said, mm, it's fine. And car started? Good, you know. And some of these questions, I just realized, it's so easy to skim over what is well, this quality of actually contentment within the world of conditions. And that sense of thankfulness, and as John and I have both mentioned, the appreciation we also offer inwardly. There's a lot of things we could be doing today. And yet here we are, just planting the seeds of inner freedom, appreciating our efforts, the sincerity we bring to our life, appreciating when we see things fall away. Um, so, before I go into the kind of insight part of joy, is, is there anyone to add to that? Or are we done? Okay. I think there's one other dimension I also want to mention here, which is an extremely important one on the path that we're on, and one that particularly the Buddha mentions in the early text, which is the joy that we find upon releasing ourselves from habit. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of nods out there. <laughs> yeah, the joy that comes from releasing yourself from habit. The freedom from habit, the f- movement from bondage, no matter how small the habit, into some form of freedom from habitual responsiveness, or actually habitual reactions is a better way of putting it. The freedom from habitual re- reactions gives rise, to, again, not to ex ecstasis or any ecstatic state but to a gentle joyfulness that ripples through our sense of being and the more that we can do this begin to perceive the habits and gently and in a friendly way liberate ourselves from them the more joy that starts to enter into our hearts and starts to enter into our lives Um, it becomes actually something which is far more constant in our experience rather than exceptional.
It becomes the constant background, the sense of not being captured, captivated, bound to states which often uh, make us feel miserable. Yeah? But again, we have to want to engage in that liberative process in order to capture or to actually allow that joy to arise in our, in our ordinary lives. Okay, so the, I want to speak about the insight aspect of the cultivation of joy. And I, I see joy as an antidote to two particular tendencies that I'm sure we'll all be rela- able to relate to. I see joy very much as an antidote to craving, to tanha, insatiable hunger, insatiable thirst. This I see in the wider spectrum of the cultivation of joy. More specifically in the cultivation of mudita, I see mudita or appreciative joy as an antidote to what I mentioned or just touched upon last night, which is mana, the conceit of self. So I want to just touch upon this first part, that joy is an antidote to craving. Why is that? I mean, we we probably see the pervasive and and the rather pernicious nature of tanha as a thread that runs through our lives, our leaning outwardly, our leaning into the next moment, our leaning into people, into things, basically with this insistence, please give me something. And please give me something I feel to be lacking in myself. Please make me happy. Please make me feel fulfilled. Please make me feel enough. Please make me feel to be someone. So tanha, this this unquenchable thirst, rests upon an underlying belief system of insufficiency, a culture of lack, a culture of not enough, not having enough, not being enough. So that underlying belief system actually leads us to inhabit a somewhat barren inner landscape, inner desert. But then we catapult out into the world like hungry ghosts, seeking externally what we believe to be lacking internally. More sensual craving, not sensual appreciation. Sensual craving, more craving to become, more craving to get, more craving to have. And it is a somewhat merciless pursuit, isn't it? Because even the temporary moments of satisfaction seem to turn into another moment of disappointment or boredom or disinterest. And of course, as we mentioned yesterday, clinging and grasping are simply a continuation, a magnification of this very primary tendency. And actually what we come to see is that there is no gladness in craving. There is no gladness in craving. They do not coexist. So we are learning in the cultivation of joy actually how to, how to quite intentionally stop and pause amongst the surges of craving and actually really to be able to ask ourselves in a very sincere way, What in this moment is truly lacking? 
what in this moment is actually lacking? Is there enough in the moment for sensitivity? Is there enough in this moment for kindness? Is there enough in this moment for uh, compassion, using that word? Is there enough in this moment to be investigated? So then again, we really see how closely joy is interwoven with both mindfulness and metta, being able to pause, being able to turn inwardly, being able to befriend. And we do perhaps begin to see in our own experience that craving really only has one taste, which is the taste of imprisonment, and that joy has a different taste, which is the taste of freedom. So this is the first domain of insight cultivated within the landscape of joy. In a few texts in the Pali Canon, the Buddha makes it even stronger about why there is a joyless situation when we're craving. He actually uses a phrase in Pali, which is, or he is quoted as using a phrase in Pali, which is actually the words tanhadasa, which actually means the slaves of tanha. We become the slaves, we become enslaved to tanha. There's something in this word tanha which... Um, doesn't come across in English um, when it speaks about the human condition, you know, the ordinary human condition of what, he, what is usually referred to as the puttajana or the bahajana, the many. You know. And this is that there is a tremendous pathos attached to the word tanha. Yeah. This, is, uh, this is the human condition, um, if you like, that evokes a tremendous amount of pathos. And it doesn't come in English when you just say craving. You know, it might sound like you know for a chocolate bar or whatever it might be. Um, you know, it doesn't actually evoke this overall sense of being in, in captured by the whole process of what tanha is, caught up in it. And actually, it isn't just tanha, because there's something that keeps tanha in place that feeds it, which is known as upadana. Yeah. Upadana, which is usually clinging or attachment to things. And the word literally means in Pali to fuel. Actually, it means like throwing logs on the fire, you know, pouring petrol onto a fire. This is what we're doing when we cling. We keep, not only keep tanha uh, in place, we cause it to blaze even further. I hope you can see this is a fairly joyless condition. <laughs> yeah. As we do it. However, there is not, if you like, there's not a sort of finger wagging of guilt about this. In a way that tanha is a response, um, an inadequate response in many senses, but it is a response or an attempt to deal with dukkha in our lives. Unfortunately, the thing that we don't see is, of course, in trying to deal with dukkha through tanha upadana, uh, what we do is actually we exacerbate dukkha. We make it worse. So it becomes a response to dukkha and feeds back and makes it actually worse. No wonder the pathos in this word. Yeah. If you think that that's constantly, constantly on what I call our average, ordinary everydayness that we're engaged in, 
then no wonder a lot of our existences are fairly joyless. We feel, actually, uh, often, even if it isn't immediately raised to our cognitive levels, we feel somehow entrapped. The world diminishes. The world contracts in many senses. And just that little thing, as I said, of think of the joy that comes upon release of any habit pattern which is bound, obviously, to tanha, is bound to upadana, that comes about. There is a sense of spaciousness, of non-contraction in this world. That moment. And it might only be a little thing, but that sense of release and that sense of joy that comes when we release ourselves from any form of craving and attachment. Again, I, I think there's a great importance in kind of actually reflecting on this in a way that we apply it to our own experience. I, I mean, I agree. I, th- I think tanha is not only a response to dukkha, it's actually seen as being a solution to dukkha. And the Buddha says that tanha is one of the direct proximate causes of discontent, struggle, um, you know, all of the psychological and emotional distress we can experience. Um, and then to see tanha as a solution to that is rather perverse. And yet it's acted out all the time. You know, I feel a little bit discontented, I'm bored. I think I'll go to the fridge. I'll turn on the TV. And, ah, you know, I have that moment of arising from discontent, only actually really to be making a vote of no confidence in myself and to see the rearising of the dukkha. It's something that happens really in so many small ways in our lives. But I want to turn actually more towards mudita now, this sense of appreciative joy, our capacity to celebrate. To, Shall we pause before we move into that? Uh, I swallow those words back in. They were never said. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> John's suggesting that we have a brief pause moment before we move directly into Mudita. Any clarifications? Questions we'll do tonight? Yeah, clarifications, yeah? Um, yeah, about something you just said, which was, you know, if you're dissatisfied and you turn to the television or the refrigerator, um, a part of me immediately goes, well, really, what's so bad about that? I mean, once in a while, you know, do I have to, like, restrain every, every impulse to... Uh, How about a little moment of practice? (laughs) There is nothing intrinsically wrong with opening the refrigerator door. (laughs) You would starve without this. There is nothing intrinsically wrong with turning on the television. If it supports the delusion that this is an answer to discontent, we are actually feeding and fostering that delusion. And it's very important to notice this, that this doesn't mean that we actually remember about, you know, there is sensual appreciation, sensual joy. There's nothing wrong with enjoying a lovely meal. In, um, it's, it's noticing those nuances within ourselves when we're actually using this as a mechanism to try and solve a discontent 
which is actually really only going to be answered inwardly, actually. So in, in the question of, you know, do we allow ourselves the momentary impulses, you know, I think it's very important not to see impulse as a break, a good break from mindfulness. And it's very important that we, because I don't, I'm not joking here, you know, I'm really serious, because I think sometimes there is the feeling that, oh, you know, I need a break from being mindful. <laughs> you know, just give me a break, a little, you know, this is a good few moments of self-indulgence here, you know, going to do me the world of good, you know. <laughs> but I think this is actually pointing to something else, the way that we're actually employing mindfulness or engaging in mindfulness with this over-earnestness and this kind of heaviness, actually, rather than have engaging in mindfulness actually as a joyful exploration and a joyful way of being connected. And this is a very important slide, I think, to be really conscious of. Because, again, if I treat my practice like paying my taxes, you know, this is actually really not fun at all. You know? But actually, and so we really need to be aware of that slide inwardly, you know, where it goes into that realm of, of heaviness and, and over-seriousness. Because then we will feel that we need those breaks from being mindful. Actually, really, rather than really reveling, actually, in the joyfulness of sensitivity, you know, the joyfulness of being present, even the joyfulness of being mindful within the difficult, because we know we're taking care of our lives. So it's really being mindful of that slide, I think. I would say. Yeah, I think you see this as well. I think if those modalities of mind come in where mindfulness becomes a very heavy thing, your body becomes heavy too. Your mind becomes leaden. Everything becomes bleh, like this. That's not what's meant about this. In fact, one of the, some of the qualities that are listed, for example, in Abhidharma um, listings, is actually, uh, it brings about flexibility of mind, flexibility of body, lightness of mind, lightness of body. There's many ways of interpreting this, but I actually interpret them actually about the physical body as well. Actually, one of the great indicators of how you feel mentally is look at your body. How does it feel? If your body feels leaden, probably your mind is as well. Uh, And if it feels a penance, basically your body will feel heavy in this instance. I think there's one other thing I just want to add on the back of that. There's a huge difference as well between what I call appreciation. In other words, going to the refrigerator and getting out something and really enjoying it because I taste it and I actually really spend some time um, exploring those tastes and that. Uh, There's a big difference between that appreciation and compulsion. 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 Yeah. Huge difference between that. When we compulsively do things, there is no appreciation. Yeah, there's a wonderful line in one of Rilke's poems, uh, which I think uh, actually ought to be written in Buddhist um, circles as well, which is, be the magic at the crossroads of your senses. Yeah. Which I think is a wonderful thing, because often we forget that. We get lost into the world of craving, and we don't appreciate uh, the magic of this sensory experience. And that's that, the joy that comes through that appreciation. Yeah. I mean, I do think, I'm glad you asked this, because I think it really points out, you know, to what I observe often in retreat, you know, that uh, sometimes, you know, people this need to kind of break out of the schedule, you know, kind of, you know, break out of the retreat, you know, do something impulsive. And, 
And it, it is very, very difficult when the, when the mind is heavy, you know, when the mind is kind of flat, to actually really actually begin to actually taste any sense of joy, you know. So it doesn't surprise me that that urge arises at all. Um, but I, I, and I, but it's very, it, it is so challenging, you know, when the mind, it, you know, it, it says, that, what is that, Pamsayman? Oh, when it, I can't remember, it'll come to me. Um, but there is something about, you know, here really looking at how much we balance, you know, the kind of intentionality of beginning to be present with some of those difficult moments, and yet not losing sight of that attitude of joy. And that this is also something that's, that's cultivated alongside actually cultivated alongside you know it's, it's like when my eye you know when my mind is bleak the world is bleak you know when my eyes are closed the world is closed so how to do these simultaneously I personally have never really pinned this down in teaching you know how to convey that and and I think it is partially because the mind you know when you come and sit you know we sit with ourselves and it's not all good news and then that's alongside the inclination to focus on the imperfect and what is wrong. So the surprise that that, you know, that thought arises, sometimes I just need to get out. You know, I came to retreat because I needed to, felt the need to get out of my life. You know, and then I get on retreat and I feel the need to get out of retreat. You know, and so I guess that is a clue. <laughs> <laughs> just slightly. I guess that's a clue it's got something to do with the state of our mind. <laughs> <And, coughs> no, you have something. <coughs> um, I thought I heard you say conceit of self. Yes. Uh, well, I'm going into that as, as the next uh, insight element of Mudita. Well, you're actually describing what Thomas Merton uh, describes as the contemporary violence of our times. Um, I mean, you know, very few. I mean, it's a very blessed few people who have the option of, you know, I think about working here at IMS. Well, this is pretty the ideal situation. It's far removed from many people's work lives, you know, where there is demand, insistence, performance, evaluation, judgment, criticism, aggravated colleagues, you know, sometimes doing things we don't even want to be doing. I mean, you know, this is not, there's no easy answer to this for many people. But I would say, one thing I would say, it is so, so critical not to reserve our ideas of practice for those times when our butts land on the cushion. 
because, you know, that very feeling that now I have to do this is really saying something about the state of our lives, not just the state of our mind. It's not all internal. There are objective realities, you know, and, and there is something about how, how do we kind of have this much bigger picture of how, you know, not, I think I come home and I'm dog tired and I think now I'm supposed to cultivate joy. And, you know, what, you know <laughs> good luck. It is so important, you know, I, I mean, I don't even like to use this word practice hardly anymore. I, I really, really feel that we actually need to think of t- in terms of path. And when we think in terms of path, we are looking at the whole of our lives. And the Buddha talked about path. He did not talk about formal practice in that way as somehow being something distinct you know, or where, where exploration gets reserved. But this is a huge question, but actually, you know, we, I think for most people, they need to learn how to insert these moments of mindfulness and these moments of inspiration into the whole of their lives. Personally, I don't think it's a good idea to start formal practice dry. You know, if I find that I've got some resistance to coming to my cushion, it's because I've forgotten why I'm doing it. You know, I've lost sight inwardly about why I'm doing it, and it's become an obligation. And that's what I mean by dry, you know. And, and I think there's a tremendous value in... It's also not about sitting, you know. What about walking? What about standing? But what about taking 10 minutes to actually read something that really inspires me and helps me to remember why I'm doing this? What about listening to something for 10 minutes that really inspires me? We need help remembering. You know, we do need help remembering. And, you know, it's not a kind of, you know, dependency or, you know, I should do this on my own, that exaggerated sense of responsibility. We need help to remember. I think sometimes really, you know, sometimes it's not that hard to build into our lives ways that help us to remember that aspect of sati. Yes, uh, I'd like to ask you um, to write down on the board some of the terms you used in relation to dukkha the other day. Uh, I made some notes, but I'm not sure I have things right. Anadukkha, Sankata, Dipala. Okay, we'll write, we'll write them down at some point today. Yeah. yeah. Okay, well, actually, it is three o'clock. We should we have a break now before we go into Medita or should we get started and then have a break? Okay, so we'll we'll get started with Medita. Our capacity to celebrate and appreciate the well-being of another and of ourselves. It's something of a kind of altruistic, I would almost say a selfless joy. Remember how how we speak yesterday about this dialogue between the wholesome and the unwholesome? You remember? <laughs> the selfish joy arises really when many of the qualities such as envy, covetousness, and resentment begin to fall away. And these can be quite subtle, sometimes quite gross factors in our life. You know, our friend's child does better than our own in exams. Do we celebrate 
You know, someone gets a job, we want it. Are we happy for them? Our neighbor goes on a wonderful vacation while we rake leaves or shovel snow. Are we happy? These are very trivial examples. But again, going back to the phrases that John read yesterday, you know, how wonderful you are in your being. I delight that you are here. I take joy in your good fortune. May your happiness continue. I have to confess that when I first, when John, when I first heard those from John, I had an inner cringe because it kind of reminded me about a sort of sentimentality again, the near enemies of the Brahma Viharas, you know, something I might feel about a puppy, um, but not about, not about selflessness. Something I'd like to just point out here is that if you notice, when, when your heart, when your mind is most established in skillful, wholesome qualities, metta, calm, spaciousness, mudita, do you notice how the voice of selfing becomes so quiet? And the gap and the division between self and other becomes more transparent. We can actually see ourselves in the eyes of another. So we're rejoicing in their happiness. Notice when more unskillful states are present in the mind. Envy, covetousness, craving. How the voice of self emerges quite stridently. And that the gap between self and other widens and becomes solid. And in these moments we are prone to seize upon the particulars rather than seeing the whole of another. Notice when we're aversive, we will, I will notice everything that's wrong about you. You know, your socks, your hairstyle, your walking fashion. I will be prone to seize upon the particulars and no longer see the whole of you. In all your joys, in all your sorrows, in all your loveliness, in all your struggles. Have you noticed in the presence of aversion and unskillful states within ourselves how we are also prone to seize upon the particulars and that's when we come up with the self-definitions of I am. You know, I am this, I am that, I am inadequate, I am, you know, too competitive, I'm too jealous, you know. We've seized upon a particular and we have ceased to seize the whole and in this, mudita disappears. Mudita disappears. So there is something about mudita which is actually allowing, is, is actually the sensitivity to see another person in their fullness, the fullness of their being. Just as we learn to see ourselves in the fullness of our being rather than seizing upon fragments and mistaking them to be the whole, mistaking them to be the truth. It is where mudita is so so closely aligned with befriending, so closely aligned with, uh, with metta, with spaciousness, with mindfulness, knowing that that prone to seize upon the particular, of course, is the clinging, grasping, aversive, craving mind. Um, so, so much of this path is actually really dedicated to actually cultivating this more spacious, this more spacious mind this less selective perception, this less uh, of a mind where perception is governed by craving and aversion, which is where we seize upon particulars. 
to actually turning down the volume and selfing, you will notice, I think, very clearly in your own experience, probably, that the more I in you there is, the less joy. The less I in you there is, the greater the joy. That's why I'm stopping. <laughs> You're done. I just wanted to point out before we take a break one of the important things about this whole notion of mudita is that mudita really, I think in line with what Christina is saying when she's talking about the self mudita is the child actually of metakaruna it arises out of metakaruna it's there because metta karuna are basically starting to diminishing our, diminish our fixation on self. It's born actually out of concern. It's born out of, de- of a degree of blissfulness as well. The concern is obviously there in, well, let's say, karuna and ukampa as we were using yesterday. Not the dance group, by the way, that we... <laughs> talked about. Um, but Karuna Anukampa is that which of course is in some senses asking us to come out into the world to be responsive to others. Remember that whole issue of turning outwards? Yeah. So much of the time when we're selfing we're turned inwards. Yeah. We don't look out. We don't look out and see others. Again, it strikes me another poem of Rilke. I think it's the Eighth Elegy. I don't know if anybody knows these poems of the Duino Elegies, where Rilke says, you know, all beings look out into the open. Only human beings turn around looking into themselves. You know, and we do this from a very early... He goes on, I'm paraphrasing, but he goes, says we do this from a very early era. We turn the child around and force them to look into themselves rather than into the open. Now, it's not quite the same, but I think what is implied in, in the whole movement of metta, karuna, and I'm using that as a kind of shorthand for karuna and akampa, what is implied by that is there is this turning around we begin to turn around and we begin to look at others. And in that looking for others, the self is diminished. When I actually am concerned about you you in your pain, there is less concern about me in that movement. And in a way, the mudita, and I think we'll go into this after the break, the mudita is born out of that movement of turning outwards, where I begin to really take joy in your sense of being here. How wondrous you are in your being. I rejoice that you are here. That movement. That is a huge movement. Um, Again, I wouldn't want us to undervalue that, that movement. But it starts with metta, and it starts with karuna. And it finds its birth in the attitude of mudita and this appreciative joyfulness, this gentle joy that we can experience at the being of others. Okay, Okay, I think we'll take our break now and we are most certainly not hitting our targets.
Um, but we'll come back at 3.30, please, quite promptly, to continue.
Okay, so we want to continue with Mudita and we actually do want to start with Upeka this afternoon. Now we often hear of Mudita, appreciative joy, as being the direct antidote to jealousy, to envy, which indeed it is. But I think there is something much deeper that Mudita is an antidote to and this is this mana. We did speak about this a little bit last night, often translated as conceit of self, which is rather, you know, doesn't make mean anything to most people. Um, but it is a way, mana is a way in which we position ourselves relationally to others. I'm better than you, I'm worse than you, or I'm the same as you. Now, that sounds rather innocuous, doesn't it? But actually, these positioning, relational positioning, can govern every aspect of our life, determining whether we sit in the front of the hall or in the back of the hall, whether we feel able to ask a question or not ask a question, whether we feel we have some merit on this path of awakening or not. Um, so, the kind of choices we make in our lives, the jobs we aspire to, the way that we speak to other people, it, it is actually quite endless. So, I want to go into this about... Can I just interject? Please, yes. Actually, all of these are referred to in the part, I'm going to just write something on the book, because mana is referred to, and this is a lovely word in Pali and Sanskrit. As ahankara which means an eye-maker. It literally means that which makes the eye. You know, the eye of the first-person pronoun. So it's that which is engaging in constructing and making the eye. And if you notice of all the formulations that Christina has just said to you, um, I am better, I am worse, I am the same as. The I am is what is constructed in those positions. That is the Ankara. I feel somewhat worse than you, inferior to you, lesser than you. I may find myself in my thinking patterns, engaging in quite a bit of cynicism, envy, completion. I may feel inclined to highlight everything that is wrong with you, to feel the need to actually pull you down a little bit. But I also may engage in a great deal of self-judgment, blaming, and despair. I convince myself of my inadequacy. And actually, when there is a low mood, low mood, low mental states, this is almost always the position of mana that is taken, that I'm worse than you. I'm worse than everyone. If I feel better to be feel to be better than you, superior to you, I may need to feel the need to engage in a lot of defending, defending all I have, defending all I believe to be, myself to be. I will be a great uh, defender against criticism and a great hoarder of praise. 
I might need to strive constantly to maintain my superiority. I may become fearful, quite fearful of loss and cling to every, all that I have more tightly. I may actually become quite ruthless and aversive. Now, if I believe myself to be the same as you, this is almost the most insidious of these positions, positionings of mana, because it really makes it impossible for me to celebrate the happiness or good fortune of anyone. I need to, uh, I may celebrate not just sameness, but a kind of mediocrity, you know. We're all schmucks together. None of us are ever going to be liberated. No one ever could be. You know, we all fail. We all, you know, it's kind of inner consoling. Everybody makes mistakes. Everybody fails. You know, this kind of a minimized sense of aspiration, I would call it, deflated sense of aspiration, deflated sense of possibility, but also needing to see all others. Uh, in the same way, in this position in Amana, we may actually hold very fatalistic views. Despair will be familiar, hopelessness and will be familiar, and wise effort will seem like nonsense to us. Because nothing can change anyway. In England, we have some amazing expressions around this particularly, particular conceit of self. You know, something goes wrong and you go, what do you expect? What do you expect? Of course, it's just fitting in with my notion of this flawed universe. Now, Mana is usually operating in my understanding quite unconscious level, and yet it closes the door to Medita, to joy in every aspect. It's almost a depressor of joy, I would say, Mana. And it's why joy is put into the context of moment-to-moment cultivation in the arisings of selfing in the arisings of selfing, because the way that the selfing process is shaped is not only by the particular conditions of the moment, you know, a pain in the body, a thought in the mind, uh, an emotion. The way that the selfing is shaped is also very much rooted in this underlying conceit of self, which actually really gives rise to many of the other tendencies we experience. Yes, mana is the most fundamental insidious form of selfing. I mean, I think probably Christina has already highlighted that with you. Um, this, this is reason why in terms of the fetters, the whole notion of mana is one of the last to go. And I think you mentioned that yesterday. So when we're kind of enthralled to any of these positions then there is this subtle sense of self. Now, I always find this interesting because we have many different words for selfing in Buddhist practice. Um, we have the Sakaya Ditti, which we spoke about. Remember, I wrote it up on the board. It's gone. It's on the other side now. <laughs> the Sakaya Ditti that I spoke about, which is the self-views that we take up, almost like our key positions on who we are. You know, and this is one of the fundamental ones. Um, we have the whole notion of self which is constructed seemingly out of the processes of those five things I briefly mentioned last night, the five ranges of our experience. 
and which give rise to a sense of a gross sense of um, an immutable self, you know, something which isn't changing, something which is my core self. And then finally, even if you manage to get rid of these two, you know, the, the, the sense of the self-view, that we, the positionality that we take on ourselves, and once we get rid of the, the gross sense of the self, uh, as an underlying phenomena behind our experiences, there is still this subtle insidious sense of mana. It really is very, very deeply buried. So in other words, the sense of the I amness of our being uh, in juxtaposition with others is what is establishing our sense of being in the world most of the time, in superiority, inferiority, and in mediocrity. Yeah, in all of those three modalities that we find. Uh, but don't think this is easily accessible. Yeah. I think it exhibits itself rather than something you can introspect. Yeah. In those subtle senses of superiority, let's just take the most obvious ones, um, the positioning of yourself against something. I don't do it that way. Now, it doesn't sound very much that's going on there, but it can be, again, this subtle sense of mana coming through. That actually, my way, I am superior in the way I do this. Yeah. So there becomes this subtle sense of arrogance. And I actually think this is where we see it manifest. We don't see it manifest as something I think we can deeply introspect. We see it actually in a whole range of speech patterns which elevate and denigrate and level out. Our experience, you know, I think that's a very good example that Christina gave of a kind of English um, speech pattern, which is so indicative. There are many, many other speech patterns that we can find, and I think, you know, given the, you know, the range of our languages, that we need to look at those ways that are manifesting in our speech, in our subtle senses of making ourselves superior, inferior, and the same as, in all this case. But I don't think it's open to direct introspection. I don't know if Christine agrees. We actually haven't talked about this. It is, it is not something that is apparent. We can only spot the symptoms of it. But if, if you kind of look at how mana is actually the supporting pillar of many of the gravest injustices in our world, because mana, particularly you know, the superiority mana, I'm better than you, will need to make others into something lesser. And if you think about many of our wars can only survive by dehumanizing people, by making them into something lesser. Many of uh, you know, racism, ageism, sexism, all of our isms, thrive on this. The need, the almost a compelling need to make someone lesser so that we can feel greater. We can only spot the symptoms. We can only spot, yes, the way that this manifests in our choices, in the realms of confidence, in the realms of aspiration, and, you know, I do find, you know, although I've, I, I hear many times people being cautioned in practice about having too many, ex not having expectations, well, you know, I kind of go in the other d direction. I say, please have a few. 
not in terms of insistence or becoming or shoulds, but just seeing how prevalent the kind of deflated mana is and how that manifests in very, very reduced levels of aspiration and expectation. You know, I can't change. I've always been this way. You know, all these ideas about awakening, well, they're just stories from the past, aren't they? Not really relevant today. Oh, that person you're talking about who's so compassionate, now I heard they pick their nose. And then... <laughs> Sorry, that's a bit gross. <laughs> <laughs> when Al Gore put out his film, in an, an Inconvenient Truth, was very quick that people published his utility bills online without actually noticing that he was generating the electricity himself. But, um, but that need to actually pull down, pull down, to, to make everything impossible. Uh, so it, the, the symptoms we spot, not the actual surge, because it's like the surge of mana or the underlying belief system, it's almost like percolating through these different layers. And very doesn't express itself in something wholesome, I might say. Expresses itself in something unskillful. So mudita is almost like a training against mana. It is a celebration of the happiness of others without any conditions, without any narrative, without having to explain or figure out how they got their good fortune. In it. It is a very, very selfless celebration. And I, I think, we, again, this is one of those qualities, like all of the Brahma Viharas, which we've all tasted in our life. You know, we've all tasted that genuine sense of celebrating the happiness of another, celebrating the good fortune of another. We know actually what that is like. So we're actually training ourselves. And again, the question is, where do we train ourselves? Well, actually, in all the moments of withholding, whether it's an absence of generosity, where we kind of revert back to how I feel rather than actually the appreciation of another's good fortune. Um, We train in the classrooms of withholding. We train in the classrooms of withholding because these are, the, these are the classrooms of disconnection and of retreating into a world of, of I and you and self and other. Yeah, disconnectedness is the birthplace of the self. When there is disconnectedness, there is self. It's as simple as that. There is self-other distinction. There cannot be a genuine encounter with the other. What we encounter is ourselves again and again and again. I think this is what mana particularly is about. What we encounter is ourselves projected onto the other. In comparison, usually. In judgment. There isn't that open stance that is taken. So mana is always a positionality. It's always taking a position. It's always implicitly making a judgment on others. So as Christina says, you know, we cannot actually effectively be with others in an open-hearted way when there is truly 
operative, when we're truly operative from this deep sense of self and this very, very deeply buried sense of mana. Now, what I think is the good news is actually it drops away. That's the good news. It isn't always there. It is in those moments when we open up and feel genuinely touched by another's good fortune, by another's joy, um, by a, you know, I don't, the new child that somebody has, by the, um, the good fortune that may come to somebody you know, in getting promoted. I'm talking very mundane things, getting promoted in their, in their workplace and things like that. You know, that is the good news, that actually when we hear about this selfing nature, with either all the gross forms of the self that I mentioned, or this deep sense of mana, they drop away. And actually, I think this is very, very heartening because <clears throat> we can see that actually a lot of the time in this world, we don't operate from those really, really strong elements. Often we retreat into those positions when we feel challenged by others. Yeah. When we're challenged in some way and we end up being defensive. And strangely enough, even I feel worse than, than you know, I am worse than you, is a defensive position. Yeah. I'm defended, I retract into myself in that way. So what we talk about in these cases is there is this lack of connectivity. There is a lack of real connectedness. And remember what I was saying about nearly all Pali terms um, in trying to make clear is that all these virtues, the terms that are used for virtue, including the Brahma Viharas, are terms of connectivity, literally stickiness. They help you to stick to the other, you know, to open to the other, to be with the other. But for the dropping away, the aligning of self in these particular situations, so that self isn't dominant. The normal situation when self is really, really prevalent in that defensive position is I'm always kind of have this, what I think Iris Murdoch called the big, fat, restless ego sitting in front of my gaze. You know? <laughs> I sort of go... <laughs> and I might get a glimpse of you. <laughs> but not a lot. Because it's sitting there, rather right in front of us. It's basically, it obfuscates our vision, obfuscates our ability to be with the other, and certainly to be with the other in any sense of joyfulness, any sense of connectedness. And joy, in this way, of course, is connection. This is what it's about. You know, all of the things we've speak, spoken about so far, um, the metta, the karuna, and the mudita are all senses of connection with others. I mean, I'm afraid I'm going to keep banging this drum as long as we're on these subjects. I mean, I actually only have one more thing to say in this area, then I'm done. Um, but I think, I think it's so important, as, as we started out talking this afternoon, to be aware of the ways in which mudita cannot be separated from the wider spectrum of joy. And I invite you to really look at that in your own experience when you are more, more established inwardly in a genuine sense of inner happiness, well-being, inwardly generated contentment, ease. Do you notice how much easier it is actually to celebrate the well-being and the happiness of another? And do you actually notice that when we're more established, say, in difficult mental states, low moods, aversion... <coughs> It is so difficult. To sell. It's so, we so begrudge, actually, often even the happiness of another. So again, as in all Buddhist teachings, we look at the conditions that support mudita, and we look at the conditions that obstruct mudita. 
So we're not in the business, again, of trying to annihilate mana. We're not in the business of trying to annihilate resentment. We're actually much more involved in this investigation of what supports jealousy, resentment, feeling lesser than, or feeling superior to. And what is it that supports this capacity for generosity, for appreciation, for celebration? So in Buddhist teaching, we are always looking at this fluid world of inner conditions, changing by nature, but also changing by intention. The world of inner conditions changes by nature, but it also changes by intention. And really the work of our practice is to take up that intentionality in the form of what we are cultivating. And that again, this is my drum, (laughs) the cultivation of the skillful and the helpful is the enabler of the letting go of the unskillful and the unhelpful. It's a shift in orientation again. But it is also the beauty, I think, of this teaching because if we really see that conditions change by nature but also change by intention, this is actually where there is a genuine sense of possibility and a genuine sense of pathway. Um, And again, mudita, like the other Brahma-viharas, is is practiced in exactly the the same way as an insight practice. That we would use a particular set of phrases, I rejoice in your happiness. I delight that you're here. And we would listen inwardly to the quieter inner voices of response rather than using the phrases to drown out those quieter inner voices. Where do we see the arising of mudita? Where do we see the stifling of that genuine responsiveness inwardly? Knowing very, very simply that what we dwell upon becomes the shape of our mind and that the shape of our mind does indeed become the shape of our world that very key teaching around the Brahma-viharas. I just want to say one final thing, which is all of the Brahma-viharas we've looked at so far, including, and no exception to Nadita, actually represent something which I think is worth bearing in mind. They represent optimal emotional health. This is optimal emotional health. Having that capacity for friendliness, having that capacity for outgoing kindliness, and having this capacity for some degree of appreciative joy in your life. This is not narcissistic. It's not a narcissistic, narcissistic pleasurableness that comes from these, because it's actually deeply, deeply connected, as I say, to the other. And just remember the definition I gave you right at the very start when we started talking about mudita, what it actually means in the Pali. And I just really want to finish that again, because it's a long phrase, but I think it's worth hearing it again, which is that mudita is an emotional resonance uh, which has soft-heartedness, gentleness, tenderness, and being suffused with joy and gladness of the heart. If that doesn't sound like uh, emotional good health, I don't know what does. 
So when we start speaking of medita, it's that movement away from the self. The, when it's practiced as an insight practice, we get very, very clear glimpses of the selfing process here. The obstruction, the obfuscation from the gentleness, the soft-heartedness, the tenderness that can arise in our experience. Actually, when those are absent, there's usually the self present. Yeah? Very, very strongly. Um, a self, actually, that has a very good defensive carapace around it yeah? uh, and doesn't venture out very often to meet others. To engage in mudita is to venture out, to drop the carapace, and to come out into an open sphere to meet and genuinely see others and be with others. And mudita is one of those primary movements. Okay, we're going to start with Opeka. Is everybody bright, awake, alert? You need to stand up and jiggle for a moment. <laughs> if you need to stand up and jiggle for a moment, please do so. If you feel you're sinking at all or losing your edge, just jiggle a bit. It's good stuff, jiggling. Okay, Upeka, Upeka equanimity. So crown of all of the Brahma Viharas, many ways of fruition, and it's a list crosser. Upeka is a list crosser. It's the fruition of the factors of awakening. It is one of the concentration absorptions. It is one of the paramis. But Upeka equanimity, as it's usually translated, does not leave metta, mudita, or anukampa karuna behind. Upeka is pervaded with them. Equanimity is pervaded with them. Think of the quote that we used earlier. Equanimity gives selflessness to kindness, gives patience, courage, and fearlessness to compassion, guards joy from sentimentality, it brings all of the noble qualities of the heart together in freedom. In Pali, I'm sure John will point this out, Upeka is at times used interchangeably with Nibbana, with liberation. It is what all insight is aimed towards. Upeka is aimed towards the blowing out of the fires of greed, hatred, and delusion, their uprooting and their cessation. So say one more thing and I'll turn over to you. So if Metta teaches us to befriend all events and experience, Anukampa Karuna teaches us the art of empathy and responsiveness with the commitment to alleviate suffering and bring its causes to an end. Joy replenishes and restores the heart. Equanimity is understanding what it means to stand in the midst of all experience with unshakable balance. 
At times it's translated to look over, to be a guardian of, to stand in the middle of all of this. We are already standing in the middle of all of this. Upeka teaches us how to do so in an unshakable poise. It is said to protect the heart from the extremes we find within life experience and within our reactions to events we cannot control, but that so easily leave us feeling helpless, bereft, and confused. Hey, guess what? Um, I have no quarrel with this translation. Equanimity is actually perfectly okay <laughs> as a translation of this. Um, joking aside, equanimity, it is a synonym that's often used um, for liberation. Um, and there's, I'm sure we'll go into it, but there are many ways of interpreting this notion of equanimity as the synonym for liberation. What it's spoken about of in the text is the... Um, condition of equanimity is what's called samajivata, which I'll write up. Which is the balanced life. Samajivata refers to the balanced life, the goal of equanimity, the goal of the path that we walk is the balanced life. So if you want to use an image, the image here is of balance. There is another term which is used as a synonym for equanimity, for upeka. And this is found in the Abhidhamma and actually gives you a slightly different taste of this. You have to bear with me, this is a long word. Yeah. There we go. What a word. It's uh, Tatra Maja Tata. <laughs> no, not like that. <laughs> Tatra, <laughs> Tatra Maja Tata. Um, the word literally means, Tatra means thereness. Or. Um, yeah, we'll stick with thereness. Maja means middle. The tata bits ness. So it's actually in the middleness. There in the middleness. Now one can you know, sort of look at this and actually read a lot into it. It tells us something about, um, about the whole notion of Upaka that Upeka somehow is right there in the middle of things. Yeah. Upeka is not some distantiated standpoint or distant standpoint looking into the chaos and the confusion of life. There's two ways of interpreting this. It's the, you know, it's the, the middleness between being thrown off balance between, obviously, the painful events of life and the pleasurable events of life. But it also, I think, has this other double connotation of literally being there in the thick of it, in the middle of things. 
It's implying that we don't have to take up a distant standpoint to become a hermit in a cave or some recluse or ascetic in order to experience equanimity. Equanimity is really to be experienced actually right in the middle and in the heart of life. So equanimity is not disengaged. Equanimity is really strongly engaged. Yeah. And this is what the important part about it is. It's, it dwells in the middle of ordinary life and it's a way of moving it with balance through the vicissitudes of ordinary life. You know, the kind of slings and arrows of outrageous fortune uh, that we encounter as we go through life. Just one other word again before passing it over to Christina here is it has a near enemy. The near enemy of Upeka, believe it or not, is Upeka. Uh, however, Upeka in this particular version as its near enemy, um, its connotations here is not equanimity but indifference. Yeah. So Upeka in this near enemy sense, and I think it's, it's the beauty of the Pali language is actually is trying to show actually how close it is by using the same word. Yeah trying to show us that when often we think that we're in a state of genuine equanimity, we haven't explored exactly what that might mean yet, but when we are in a gen what we feel to be a genuine state of equanimity, actually we might just be kidding ourselves. We might actually only be in a state of indifference. Actually, I couldn't care less. You know, it's not that I'm being not swayed by the things that are happening to me. I'm just not connected. You know, I'm really disinterested. Yeah. Or I've numbed myself in some way. So actually, this is, I think, a really, really close pitfall here. Um, that this sort of numbness that we can have towards the difficulties of life as well as towards the good things. I'm not swayed either way because actually I'm numb. I'm anesthetized towards life. And that's such an easy state to get into, and I think particularly in meditative circles. And I shall say more later. <laughs> so personally, I'd like to explore four dimensions of our experience where equanimity is certainly of huge significance. And John maybe has other dimensions to add to this. Um, one domain where equanimity clearly is cultivated, applied, translated is actually within one of the foundations, well, within all the foundations of mindfulness, but particularly in the second foundation of mindfulness in Vedana, feeling tones, pleasant, unpleasant, and that which is neither. Because Vedana, this Vedana, which is in par part and parcel of all perception, and all experience at a very core level, Vedana, when greeted without equanimity, Vedana becomes a trigger, becomes a trigger of a chain reaction, which happens often so quickly we don't even see it. We find ourselves being for and against, wanting, not wanting, fearing, trying to control. And Vedana is the trigger of this. Vedana treated without equanimity or sati draws very quickly upon underlying tendencies 
and creates events. Vedana without, without equanimity or, or sati feeds primarily upon the underlying tendencies, once more very familiar ones, of ill will, craving, delusion, which then are superimposed upon whatever perception is arising and turns into clinging and this actually creates an event. An event is made. And we go through, we can see we go through much of our life event-making, or as the word, I think the Buddha would put it, world-constructing. World-constructing of the moment. So that's one dimension which is really, really significant around equanimity. The second dimension of equanimity that I think of applying equanimity, cultivating equanimity, is deeply important in midst of what we call, you know, very sometimes rather superficially, the eight worldly winds, the experiences of, uh, you know, gain, loss, pleasure, pain. We will go into these in more detail. The third dimension of equanimity, I think, is in the domain of human relationship, the domain in which we are most particularly vulnerable and that we are asked to inhabit and as fully alive, living, relational human beings, learning to inhabit this domain of human relationship well and with balance and poise, I'm sure we would all agree, is quite some challenge. And the fourth dimension of equanimity I would like to spend some time with, and we would like to spend this time with, is actually what... uh, the way in which the Buddha relates equanimity to nibbana, or sometimes called the signless deliverance of the mind. Gosh, how many days have we got? I know, I know. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Sorry, a little bit of despair. We had a moment of despair there. <laughs> um... This is clearly a very huge topic, but one, one which is so core to all of our experience. Should we do just do a very... you want to add something? Shall we do I, do, I just want to add something as a general comment, because I see we're running out of time for this, this particular session, and I know we're going to pick up this tomorrow morning. Oh, yeah. We are going to do that, by the way, yes. tomorrow morning, by the way. Yes. Um, we have an hour tomorrow morning, and rather than giving the closing talk that a lot of you could actually give <laughs> yourself. <laughs> you could give it to yourself on the way home, in that case, and we will spend the hour with equanimity. So just, like, okay, no anxiety here, okay? <laughs> There might be despair up here, but don't have any anxiety out there. <laughs> one, one of the things I just really wanted to say, just to conclude with this, with this particular part, is if you listen to all the domains that Christina has outlined here, that so hopefully we're going to cover at least a little bit tomorrow morning, um, you will notice actually in most of those, there are two usual reactions to this, in all of those domains, usually elation and despair. 
in all of those areas. Think of the field of human and relationship. Either everything's going well or it's going disastrously. Yeah. And I'm, perhaps I'm overgeneralizing here, but there's a lot to this. It's almost as if we live a bipolar existence. <laughs> yeah. You know, we're constantly swinging between everything's okay and everything's bad and everything's okay and everything's bad and it oscillates between the two constantly across all of those domains of our experience. What equanimity is, of course, is to cease to oscillate, to cease to swing wildly backwards and forwards between those two modalities of elation and despair. That sounds... That sounds, I hope, um, something which is doable for all of us because equanimity um, is beginning to lead the balanced life. And the image I always present of somebody moving through great turmoil, you know, a crowd with balance and equipoise, literally moving through that crowd, not being jostled, not being thrown off balance, but knowing their way through the crowd without being pulled or pushed by either, in either direction. Our normal lives, when we allow it just this free range of oscillation, is just swinging wildly backwards and forwards between the two. Equanimity is not, I might add, to finish this off, is not kind of a leveling of experience. It's not a neutralizing of experience, a sterilization of experience. It's actually a heightening of experience. And I'll say more about that tomorrow. I just have one tiny thing to add to that. We should never, ever regard equanimity as a means of depriving our lives of passion or color. And I'm saying the same thing. We are passion or color. We are asked to have deep passions in this life. Many of the Brahma Viharas actually are about very deep passions. But it is how we hold those passions simultaneously with this inner sense of poise and balance and freedom. And this is, this is the koan that we end our afternoon with. Actually, I think I'll just end, as I did yesterday, with the phrases that I came across. It's one-upmanship up here, you see. See who can finish. I just have a couple of poems. <laughs> yeah, you really have. I've got some more here. <laughs> Okay, out of that same text that I pulled the Medita phrase yesterday, I also discovered this one on Apeka, which is actually, I think, a lovely phrase for use in, in meditation as a phrase. And it goes like this. This life is but a play of joy and sorrow. May we remain undisturbed by life's, life's rise and fall. I care deeply for you, but you are the owner of your actions and their fruit. And sadly, I cannot help you and keep you from distress. Yep. Okay, one more time. (laughs) And we'll have the chorus as well. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. you You can translate it slightly either way. This life is but a play of joy and sorrow. May we remain undisturbed by life's rise and fall. 
I care deeply for you, but you are the owner of your actions and their fruit, and I sadly cannot keep you from distress. More tomorrow. I mean, thank you for that suggestion. Um, uh, I, I actually think we do need to consider at least this evening dividing up that hour and perhaps having half an hour for continuing with this so that we can do it justice. Um, we will see if we can come to a negotiated settlement of a dinner. <laughs> so... I'm, I'm sorry to compress you all in this afternoon. I, I, I do have feel for you a bit. I know it's, it's quite energy demanding to do all this listening. Um, I, however, I don't see another way. So, um, but really, the, um, Marilyn and Daphne really do need to speak with you about some of these areas of how to leave retreat. So I would really ask you to kindly give your attention to them before having a break, if that's agreeable to you. <laughs> 